What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good morning. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group, the host of the What to Know podcast show, and I am sitting here in the Dorsey in the Venetian. We had a party here last night, and so this is apropos uh, with a guy who's one of my favorites. Uh, I'm sure if you don't already know him, he will become one of your favorites. David Kirkpatrick. David is the CEO of Techonomy and actually the founder as well. He's written a book called The Facebook Effect. He was the senior tech editor of internet and technology for Fortune magazine. And uh, I found out today in doing my research, he's an Amherst College uh, alum, and I went to UMass Amherst, so we have some... Great part of the country. Yes, familiar background. So welcome, David. Thank you, Aaron. It's great to be here with you. Well, it's fun to be here as well. And uh, so, you know, we're sort of in this little oasis in a pool of craziness, and that will actually come into play in our conversation a little bit later. But we're going to get started and talk about, you know, how did you become a journalist? You really were... A pure journalist. I also uh, found out that you are an artist. I didn't realize. I studied that. art, but I'm not an artist. But I, I'm, I met my wife at art school, so I'm married to an artist. But who's I think really you, a major important artist named Elena Sisto. Yes, and she's a wonderful human being as well. I've met her a few times. But you do have a, a video. And today's it's, her birthday. Oh well, happy birthday! Well, this will go live next Thursday, so we'll look <laughs> back a week. Um, but anyway, let's talk about you know what interested you in journalism. I think you were an English major. And, and what was that trajectory like? Well, and how I got into tech is sort of a worthwhile story. So basically, I did study English, and I, I kind of knew how to write, but I didn't even get into journalism by a very willful process. In my generation, the baby boom, we didn't know what we wanted to do. Unless you were a pre-med, it was embarrassing to talk about having a career. So you know, we were just busy protesting the Vietnam War all the time and all the other things you do when you're 20. But... Um, I found myself at a point in my career um, without a job at Time Inc. And I said, oh, oh I, was, I was a copy clerk, actually, because I was doing art stuff, video art. And I said, wait, I'm in the biggest journalism company in the world. I should be a journalist. I can write. But what does <laughs> so, copy clerk mean? Because there are probably a lot of people who don't know It doesn't exist anymore. No, it's a job that it was like taking things out of a pneumatic tube and distributing them around the like nine copies, carrying them to the top editor, the senior editor, the copy reader, the photo editor and the fact checker and uh, do that all day long. And I was somewhat overqualified for that, but it got me into Time Inc. But it wasn't, the reason I went into Time Inc. was because I wanted to be a union activist, if you want to know the truth, which is a, a, something I'm proud of, but not uh, not uh, obvious. And <clears throat> But anyway, at a certain point I said, wait, I got to have a real job. I got to make enough money to have you know a life and I can write, so maybe I should be a journalist. And, and Loudon Wainwright, who's a great editor of Life Magazine and whose son is a musician and grandson is a musician, told me, don't go to journalism school. You don't learn journalism in school. You learn it by doing it. And that was good advice. So I started doing it at Time, Inc. So speaking of writing and journalism, you did write a book called The Facebook Effect. I know a lot of people have written books, but I think you were one of the first and you have a relationship with Mark Zuckerberg. You've interviewed him a number of times uh, and you and I were talking last night, and you mentioned that you were one of the first business journalists to actually take Facebook seriously back in 2006, I think you said. 
Facebook was invented, I think, in 2004. February 2004 is when okay. it started. And then, obviously, it was only open to college students for the first you know, couple of years. High school, by the time I got involved, high school and college and a few miscellaneous, but it was still a student thing, yeah. So so what was it that you saw that enabled you to see this? Because you know, it didn't really hit its stride until like three or four years later. There's a simple answer to that, Aaron. What I saw is Mark Zuckerberg. I had lunch with Mark Zuckerberg, and I said, I said, holy shit. This guy is un-effing believable. I haven't met people with this degree of focus in my life except for Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Andy Grove, and a very small number, maybe Michael Dell. I immediately felt I was in the presence of a uniquely visionary, long-term thinker. And I said, I got to listen to this guy. He is amazing. He was in the middle of a newsfeed crisis in early September 2006. It's completely unflustered. One of the biggest crises by proportional terms, any company's ever faced with its customers, 10% of his customers were actively protesting. Um, and I immediately said, this guy's amazing. And I wrote an article for Fortune uh, called Why Facebook Matters, which was a surprising piece to many people because most journalists at the time felt that Facebook was just a student thing and it wasn't really that important. And I put a stake in the ground saying this company was going to really matter and this guy is a really unusual guy. And I even told the story in the piece that I said to Zuckerberg, you seem like a natural CEO. And his face all wrinkled up and he said, ooh, I'm, I don't, I'm not interested in business. I just want to do something cool. I never thought of it as a business, which is kind of an interesting thing to look back on because that issue, which then became a huge factor in my book, does he do it for the money or does he do it for the virtues and the caring, changing the world, that continues to be a fault line that affects how he understands Facebook and how we ought to think about Facebook, and it's an unresolved question. So, one, even though the company's worth $400 billion. Yeah, well, and they've... You could you, you could argue have changed argue. the world similar to you know electricity or the the car being created or you know I don't want to over dramatize no it, you but. can't that's not over dramatizing it you know what the statement I heard recently there has never been a larger aggregation of human beings for any purpose than those that are on Facebook no re, no religion no country nothing there's never been more than two billion people gathered for a single purpose in the history of humanity until and it now. connects us in a way that we've never been connected before and I think which is a boon for advertisers but it's also there's a value exchange that's equal between us as customers and companies that want to better target people because people want to spend time there so it's really the perfect business model at the end of the day well for now it is I mean there's a huge amount to be said about the challenge they currently face given the scope of their impact on society and the extreme concerns that are arising all over the world among citizens, governments, NGOs, everybody, about the undue influence that Facebook has as a company, given that its decision-making is driven by commercial uh, uh, terms and not social benefit. They are a social asset that is defined by commercial values, and that is a fraught, dangerous problem that is not resolved. So I'm going to divert a little bit down that path because I think it's an important one. So right now you have very important. three players that sort of are in that realm, and I'll say that they're Google, they're Facebook, and now Amazon, which is slowly taking over the world. What is the social responsibility that those companies have to you know, not, I mean, we had the whole fake news thing, and I think we know that a lot of why people, and we'll get into the Trump thing in a few minutes, but um, 
that a lot of people got their news from Facebook and a lot of it was actual fake news and you know we're we're big boys and girls but there are some people that I think thought that they could trust that as a media a credible media source and what was getting shared oftentimes was not so comment on that if you don't mind this is a really rich topic that's not going to be possible to resolve in this short time but first of all I do think all three of these companies are truly values-based companies that got where they are by doing absolutely the right thing in terms of how they thought about their customers you know Amazon is the most customer-centric company I've ever observed in my career and that's one of the single biggest reasons why it has gained such extraordinary scale. Uh, Google really did think for a long time about not being evil. Whether they succeeded at that, I think they might have kind of gotten away from that. But they definitely had some clear mission of making the world, you know, making the information of everything available to everybody. I forget their catchphrase on that. And, and Facebook also has been a super conceptually consistent company in making the world more open and connected and now building community for the world. Uh, but I do think, certainly in the case of Facebook and Google, and I'm, I'm a little less uh, strident about this regarding Amazon, I think in a sense the companies lost sight of the big picture at a certain key point in their history, and they didn't realize the degree to which they were going to have extraordinary social ramifications as a key communications vehicle for all humanity and that that entails responsibilities that go beyond the commercial ones and that they have to create systems to reckon with the scale of their social responsibilities and I would argue neither Facebook nor Google have done that and that is why they are both especially Facebook getting an enormous pushback right now in retrospect, I think they both should have five years ago or more established some sort of independent oversight process, body, you know, institution, partnership with governments. I don't know what it would be, but something that allowed them not to be the sole decision makers about some of these key questions of how we decide what information flows over these key global information utilities. They have not done that, and they are paying a price, and I think even their shareholders are possibly going to regret that that didn't happen. Well, it's a fascinating topic, and to your point, we probably could spend two hours on it. We will not. Um, thank you for sharing your insights on that. Yeah, I summarized my views. No, right that there. was great and, and very insightful. Uh, I do want to get to Techconomy, which is your current venture. Yes, which is my passion. Well, and I realize that it's actually the convergence of a lot of what you started at Fortune, reading a little more about it. Uh, I had forgotten about your brainstorm series of events where you had people like... That's when I first started creating conferences. I created the brainstorm conference at Fortune. You had people, yeah. I think, like, uh, speaking of Google, uh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page and... And Eric Schmidt all the same time. And uh, Mueller, who is timely right now. Muller, we had William Webster, we had Paul Wolfowitz, we had uh, you know a lot of government leaders. We had Bill Clinton three times, uh, but we also like with Wolfowitz had a lot of people on the conservative side of the spectrum. Muller was a Republican; people forget that he still is. Um, and uh, but we also had um, most of the biggest leaders of tech and a lot of leaders in business. We had you know Meg Whitman, and I mean the list is endless. Uh, Chris DeWolf when he was leading MySpace. Um, and uh, in the very later years of that, we did have Mark Zuckerberg when we had changed the name one year because we were transitioning out to something else. Um, and that's when I learned how to do conferences. The reason I became totally passionate about the importance of conferences 
was that I've been very fortunate since 1998 to be attending Davos, which I'm going to next week along with our president. <coughs> and uh, I'm not going with him, and it just turned out he's going too. It's going to be wild. Um, but Davos, people always say to me, oh, it's, it's, it's jumped the shark, right? It's not any good anymore. I say, are you kidding? It is the best conference, the best networking, the most values-rich or environment, most globally-minded convening of leaders I have ever attended, and I'm very, very privileged to have been going there over these many years, and it really taught me long ago about how important getting people in one place could be to allow them to converge on certain ideas and really move the ball forward. So at Fortune, I took that idea and, and started creating conferences in partnership with many people there, including John Huey and, and a lot of others, um, who, incur who without his approval and encouragement, it would never have happened. Um, and, and then I still believe in conferences, and that's why we do Techonomy, which is sort of like what I did with Brainstorm at Fortune, but doing it the way I really think it ought to be done as an independent organization, um, getting together people to talk about the biggest possible questions about how technology is transforming business and society. And there is a connection to my work with Facebook because Zuckerberg made his famous and subsequently apologized for statement about why it's a crazy idea that fake news affected the election on stage at Techonomy 2016, two days after the election. ...of being there and sitting in the front row, so I felt like that was a monumental moment. So, first of all, um, we're excited because we just signed an agreement to uh, partner together. You guys are... Uh, W2O. We are so proud of our, our longstanding connection to you and work with you in many ways up to now, and now we're formalizing that, and we think it's going to be wonderful for us, and we hope it'll be good for well, you. Well, we know it will, and I think one of the things I would like to talk about is you do have two signature conferences in addition to doing all the great content. You still put out physical magazines. We were joking a little last night, but people do actually still like tactile if it's done well, but unbelievably but important. talk a little bit about the conferences and you know you have one in new york in may you have your other big one that's more focused on technology at half moon bay in november um a little bit of a mini davos right boiled down in both of those well you could say that and i think all of our events have a very sim similar character our new york event and our half moon bay event uh in, in november new york we're having a techonomy new york on may 8th and 9th a two-day our first full two-day conference in new york and Techonomy uh, 2018 in Half Moon Bay, California, on, at the Ritz right on the cliffs of the Pacific, November 11th through 13th. And, and, we, and we also publish content on our website and in a magazine, which we could talk about. But everything we do is focused on trying to identify the sort of flashpoint, turning point issues that leaders of businesses of all types and all kinds of organizations have to be assessing and understanding in order to stay most effective. And, and we like to say every company is a tech company, every leader is a technologist, because we think that's the world we now live in. That, you know, techonomy, which is our name, is very deliberately chosen conceptually that we think we are living in a techonomic world where technology is intertwined with literally everything that we do and the more we as leaders appreciate that and understand that and act accordingly, the more we're going to be able to be successful. So we look at individual industries with an aim to not only understanding what's happening, say, in the shipping industry or the real estate industry or the fashion industry, but what that's happening there might imply what's going to have to change in marketing and communications or, you know, railroads or, um, you know, garbage disposal. And I'm not kidding. 
you know, you really can get insight across any spectrum if you start putting the, 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 the dots together. And, you know, you look at what's happening now with this crazy bubble of Bitcoin and the obsession with blockchain-based systems, which I absolutely think is justified, even though it's kind of gone off the rails around Bitcoin, in my opinion, um, or, or, you know, the, the obsessive thinking about AI or um, the Internet of Things or the importance of the 5G uh, telecommunications infrastructure that we're starting to put in, what's going to change everything, um, or, uh, you know, how tech is transforming cities, uh, the nature of management, all these things are, are themes. But I want to quickly talk about the magazine because there's, a, there's an irony for us in that we are totally believers in digital transformation in all things, but our actual work is totally physical. We have physical conferences where people come together in the real world to get together and mano a mano, look at each other's eyes and do deals and talk to each other and get ideas, and we think that's still where we get our best ideas. And... We published a physical magazine, which is way better than any website we've found or PDF or anything to give somebody who will really look at it and read it and understand something fundamental. It's hard to produce. It's time consuming. It's expensive. It's, you know, low volume, but it works. Well, it helps you stand out from the crowd, too. And I think that's the thing. We're big believers in events. Uh, we're big believers in great content. We don't put out our own physical uh, magazines, but certainly this podcast, lots of blog content, you know, bylined articles and things like that. Um, this is where I like to transition a little bit and move not away from business, but to get inside the the person and talk about kind of what makes them tick. So I have a few questions that we normally ask. Can you say guests. one thing before you do that about our conferences yes. this year? You know, we are doing all the things I just described, but we are also overlaying a new concept which is really about purpose-driven business, which is something I'm very passionate about and we're passionate about, and I see more and more really important leaders of business becoming passionate about. And we're using the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals for 2030 as something of an organizing concept where we're looking at these 17 goals for humanity and trying to ask how can our sessions, many of them, look at how what's happening in AI or what's happening in blockchain systems or what's happening in water and, and all these things, how they add up towards real progress. And we're, that's a big part of our work right now. And here's a little sneak peek. We may actually have a session at South by Southwest that's focused on that. Josh and I were Very talking cool. about that last okay, night. Sorry to interrupt your no, train. That's there. totally fine. I love um, to talk about myself. So <laughs> let's go there. No. So let's let's start with um, you've had an opportunity to meet some of the most influential people in the world, you know, including presidents, uh, huge companies, you know, their CEOs over the course of your life. Who has influenced you, you know, either today or, or, you know, as you've developed and or maybe it might be a few people. But if you could share that with us, that would be fantastic. Well, I've been privileged to meet many of the world's most impactful leaders. I mean, ranging from Bill Clinton to Bill Gates to Andy Grove, uh, Steve Jobs, etc. But I would say in, in terms of influencing me personally, the two people that I would mention are. Klaus Schwab, who created the World Economic Forum, who has been something of a role model for me for more than 20 years, and Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, who is a personal friend and who I think embodies a values-based approach to business without sacrificing one whit of competitive edge in a way that I have never seen embodied in another human being. And his success is an inspiration for me, and I'm very privileged that I have him as an advisor and a friend, so he's often prodded me to be 
both more thoughtful and more aggressive, which is a really amazing combination. Um, and I have a huge admiration for Mark. He's spoken at our conference on a number of occasions. I can't always get him on our stage, but um, I think all of your listeners will recognize what I'm talking about because I think he is increasingly and justifiably known for the unique way that he takes values and brings them into business and still says extraordinarily successful in business. Yeah, I, I, I can't. I think you've described it perfectly. I've always sort of known that that's been the case. And he runs a company called Salesforce, right? Yeah, so he's a good sales guy. <laughs> he is a good sales guy. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, we had an interesting discussion as we prepared for this. I'm starting to ask a new question this year. It's a new, you know, 2018. And that's something that people don't necessarily know about you. And you had a couple of very cool answers that I think will help people better understand who you are as a person. I forget what my all my answers were. But, well, for one thing, in the last five years, I've become a Quaker. Um, and to be honest, I think even in that, indirectly, I've been influenced by my friend Mark Benioff, uh, who is, you know, very much... Uh, a, a very observant Jew, but also one of the ways I got to know him was in his work around Tibetan Buddhism and his support of Tibet House in New York uh, long ago. And, and, you know, he really understands how to keep a spiritual focus even as you operate in the real world. And Quakerism is, for me, a very important way to think about my life. And, you know, just it, it's called friends for good reason. It's viewing the God in everyone. Uh, and it's extremely simple, silent worship, um, social activism, uh, a belief in the essential goodness of mankind and, the, and hope and, and, and faith in, in, in the virtues of everything in a way. So that's one. And the other oddity that people don't know about me is that I'm a, and this is somewhat incompatible with being a Quaker, oddly, I'm a compulsive collector and I have a huge and fairly important collection of poetry-related periodicals. I'm a passionate lover of poetry and a sometime writer of poetry, but I don't really do that as much of, as I would like. But I am a little bit of a historian of, of modern and contemporary poetry, and I have a gigantic number of literary periodicals going back to you know, the first year, months of Poetry Magazine in 1913 or the Black Mountain Review of the early 50s or um, the Criterion edited by T.S. Eliot in the 20s and uh, all kinds of things in between. And it's funny that you had those as answers because as we were talking, one of my last guests, Chef Aron Sanchez from the Food Network, uh, the two things that people didn't know about him is he was a Buddhist and he writes poetry. So i got to meet this guy. Well, I'll, I'll make an intro. Uh, he's in New Orleans, so uh, that's probably part of it. But he actually is up in New York quite a bit. Uh, I should I, go I, to New Orleans anyway, shouldn't I? Shouldn't we all? It's one of the best cities. It really is. But I, I will make an introduction because he's a great guy, and I think you guys would really hit it off. Very purposeful, very thoughtful, very spiritual. Um, this is a little bit of a complete 180 from the conversation we were just having because we're going to talk about some books now. Uh, one, I know you're reading one right now, the uh, Fire and Fury, right? Uh, but there was another book that was related to the whole Trump election, which I think gives a little more insight into what happened yeah. and where we are now. So maybe you could show. Well, that. I, I, I don't read as many books as I would like, but uh, it, I am very influenced by these two books. Uh, I'm, I'm two thirds of the way through Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury, and Michael is a friend of mine, uh, somebody who I would not want to have write a book about me but who is an extraordinarily good writer, and I think he has really amazingly somehow crystallized a moment in the history of the planet 
and explained what's really happening inside the White House in a way that riveting for me and disturbing, but also um, uh, really incredibly well-written and insightful. Uh, and I highly recommend that book. Uh, in fact, I was comparing it last night to somebody, maybe to you, to Tom Wolfe, you know, because he's very, very cynical and sardonic and the irony and the uh, somewhat the dripping with sarcasm sort of uh, tone, but, but also incredibly well reported. So that's one book. But the other one that isn't as well known that I highly recommend, and, and it's sort of a, somewhat of a, an antidote because it's a book called Strangers in Their Own Land, by Arlie Hochschild, which is really a book that attempts to explain why the Tea Party and, you know, people would want to vote for Donald Trump. A lot of us, you know, coastal people, uh, New Yorkers like myself, do have trouble understanding how we got to where we are today. But it's a book that was reported in uh, Louisiana, entirely in rural Louisiana, by a Berkeley-based sociologist who went down there to try to understand the mindset of the Tea Party at the time. And these are now the same people who all voted for Donald Trump. And how to have empathy for their actual situation and what got them to be who they are and to gain the views they had and to explain some very hard-to-reconcile contradictions that seem to emerge. Like, for example, the book is all about these people who are seriously harmed by environmental pollution and yet continue to vote for Tea Party Republicans who would like to abolish the EPA. And, and they still view, they still have those two things in parallel in their lives, and they don't see it as incompatible. And she tries to explain how somebody could get to that kind of a mindset. And it's very, very well done. It's a very powerful book. I highly recommend it, Strangers in Their Own Land. came out about a, a year ago. It came out before the Trump thing had gone all the way to its conclusion. But it's a, it's, it's a very influential book on me. Well, maybe next week when you're in Davos with the president, or I guess yeah. it'll be the week that people are hearing this. 500 people between me and him. And yes, and you, can, you can hand him a copy of the book and uh, help him understand how he understands. No, that's the thing about him. He intuitively gets it. That You've got to give the guy incredible credit for his intuitive grasp of political you know, opportunity, opportunities. Uh, uh, I mean, you could say he's an opportunist. That's not what I was trying to say. He is really a brilliant, intuitive strategist who does everything by the seat of the pants, and that's something that comes through loud and clear in the book, but you cannot take away the reality of his achievement in getting elected as president of the United States. I mean, let's face it, the Russians aren't the reason he became president. They might have helped, but the fact is he did something by understanding the zeitgeist in a way that nobody else could have or would have. Yeah, I'm nodding my head. Let me ask you one last question before we get to our final fun question. If you had the opportunity to sit down and interview him, would you? Donald Trump? Yes. Oh, my God, of course. I mean, he's all the more interesting from Michael's. Yeah, I mean, I love to interview everybody. I just actually sent a note to a head of state, uh, a major head of state, uh, trying to get them to our Techonomy events this year. Uh, and, and that's something I, I definitely aspire to. And I think we're going to get to over time is that our discussions really deserve to incorporate people of that level and we've had you know foreign ministers we had um penny pritzker when she was secretary of commerce um but no i i mean i remember interviewing shimon perez on stage at brainstorm uh, one of the most important things that i ever did uh, and bill clinton also uh interviewing him uh you know i th i think it's a real honor to be able to get on stage and interview leaders of that caliber, 
Um, here at CES, I'm interviewing Sandy Peterson, who's the group executive chairman of Johnson & Johnson on stage at the Digital Health Summit. And, you know, I would never say no to interviewing anybody. And I am somewhat known for asking tough questions, so I would hope that I would live up to that if I ever had the opportunity to interview Donald Trump. Well, we'll cross our fingers that we may see that come to fruition someday. Uh, so final question, and we did talk about this, and I am already beaming with pride in, in your choice, but I like to ask our guests, uh, you're stuck on a deserted island, you have one album you can listen to, uh, what would it be and why, and you have to share your choice. You know, it, you, we were toying with this yesterday, but really, there is not even any debate. There's so many great albums, but if you're going to have one album and have it on a desert island, listen to it over and over, it has to be the White Album by the Beatles. There's just no choice. Uh, that album is one of the richest works of art that I ever experienced. It's deeply meaningful in my own personal evolution. It came out when I was, you know, in early high school years. I listened to it, you know, uh, obsessively from the very day it was released. I probably had listened to it all, both double, it was a double album, and listened to both albums all the way through at least three times by midnight on the day it was released. Uh, and I have continued to be highly moved by those songs. Well, it's a it's a personal choice of mine, and I think it's probably the one I would pick as well. Uh, David, this has been a pleasure. I've been you sitting do here. this well, Aaron. Thank you for including me. Well, it's my pleasure. You know, and and this is actually my fourth series that I've ever done, and I think I'm 45 episodes into this. Wow. So, yeah. I'm going to do a podcast soon, so well, I'm, I'm learning from you, and we want to help you guys do that. So. But, you know, David Kirkpatrick, he was, as I mentioned, senior uh, editor of Internet and Technology at Fortune. He's the founder and CEO of Techonomy. He wrote the book, The Facebook Effect. Um, gen genuine good guy, Quaker, now we know why. <laughs> no, that's, um, and thank you all uh, thank for you, listening. Thank you, Aaron. You're yes. a good guy, too. I appreciate it. No, you're welcome. Uh, so this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group, host of the What's No Podcast show. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at whwillgroup.com slash what to know.